You're listening to Grace Seal Beach Sermons. If you'd like to know more about our church, go to gracesealbeach.org. Thanks, Daz. If you have a Bible with you or you have it on your phone, pull up Acts chapter 1, where we are going to start our new series in the book of Acts that will take us uh, these next 14 weeks or so as we look at what Acts has to say about living a life of unity in Christ. I wonder if there's a time as you think about in your life when you experienced a lot of unity with other people. Uh, maybe you were on a sports team at one point and you, uh, you had a game where every soccer player was in sync and you were all moving in the same direction or maybe you're not the athletic type but you were watching from the crowd and you felt really connected to them or something. Or maybe you were in a band or an orchestra or a symphony and you think of a time where you felt really unified that you were all playing something greater together than you could have done on your own. Or maybe you're one of those families where you've looked out and you've seen every person doing their part to clean up from dinner and putting all their dishes in the dishwasher. If you're one of those families, I hate you. But um, (laughs) no, I'm just jealous. Um, We rarely have these experiences in life, don't we? Where where it feels like everything is really humming as it was meant to be. where, Where everyone's kind of playing their part perfectly and we're unified. And to be honest, when we have those moments of connection like that, we, we often feel uh, that they're really meaningful, but they're often really fleeting, either because uh, they pass too, too soon or because we realize they were based on something that didn't really matter that much. You know, you're watching an Avengers movie and you feel like everyone's playing their part and then you remember it's not real. You know, it's, uh, we, we long for this unity, but we rarely get to experience it in this life. Instead, often our lives are marked with conflict, with feeling like things aren't working out how they're supposed to. Uh, maybe you've, you've said it in your marriage, is it supposed to be this hard, right? Like, why doesn't it feel like we're connected or that we're fitting correctly or, or things are going how I wanted them to go? That, that theme of unity, why it's so meaningful to us, why, why we're made for it, how to achieve it, this is what a lot of us spend a lot of time, a lot of thought trying to, to get at, and maybe a lot of guilt feeling like we haven't. And so when we come to our passage today in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, and, and Luke writes that they were all of one accord, devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And we look at that phrase, they were of one accord, or literally in Greek, they were of one mind together. We think, oh, I would long to be part of a community like that, but it feels so impossible, or it feels so fleeting, or it feels so rare. Well, that's what we're going to talk about over these next three months. What does it mean to be part of a unified people together? If you know the Bible, you know that the book of Acts is the second half of Luke's two-part history of the early Christian movement. The first half, the Gospel of Luke, tells everything from Jesus' conception all the way till his death, burial, and resurrection. And then in his second volume, uh, Luke writes the book of Acts. It begins with Jesus telling all the disciples that uh, after his resurrection that he's heading back to the Father and that he, the, the disciples are to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then he returns to the Father's hand, right hand in heaven. And the rest of Acts, the other 28 chapters, are about how that plays out. How does the message of the gospel go to the ends of the Roman Empire? What at the time would have been thought of as the ends of the earth. And Acts is a book about mission. It's, a, it's a, a book about how that message goes out. And it would be worth spending three months thinking about Acts through the lens of mission. But underneath that, the soil that's underneath mission in Acts is the soil of unity. 
Throughout this uh, book of Acts, we see this theme of unity come up again and again and again and again. And I think it's fair to say that without the unity of the church, the mission of the church becomes a whole lot harder. Without being connected together as a people, our capacity to carry out the assignment that Jesus gave the first disciples and gives us today becomes almost impossible. The mission of God requires the unity that God creates among us. And so as you look throughout Acts, you see this theme of unity come up over and over. And because I'm, I, I, I want to set up the series well and I want you to believe me that that's true, I just want to quick, give you a quick overview of where we're going to go these next three months. The first couple chapters in Acts talk about unity in really glowing terms. In chapter one that we're talking about today and in chapters two and four, it, Luke describes how the early church had all things in common, how they uh, benefited one another, they served one another, they cared for one another. And because of that, they enjoyed the, f- the favor of all the people. That's what Luke 2.47 says. But it's not always that way. You get to chapter five and six and you see some of the threads start to show in unity. In chapter 5, you see what happens when some people start to pretend in order to, pre- to act as if they're unified when they're really holding something back for themselves. It's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And in chapter 6, you see what happens maybe when no one's intentionally trying to leave people out, but because of ra- racial obliviousness, the one group of the church is excluded uh, based on their ethnicity. Later on in chapters 8, and also later in after chapter 18, you see how right teaching and right doctrine is essential for unity. In chapter 8, you see this malicious figure named Simon the Magician try to buy the capacity to do special spiritual things and be confronted violently by Peter. In chapter 18, you see someone who has a good heart, Apollos, uh, neglect right doctrine just because he doesn't know any better. And how because of unity, right teaching is essential. And then even towards the end of the book, you see Paul continuing to work through the churches that have been established, encouraging encouraging them to stay unified. And at the very end of the book, he comes to Rome in chapter 28, thinking he's all alone, only to find that there are Christians there he's never heard of or wasn't expecting. A reminder that at the end of the book, it is Christ who builds the church and who establishes our unity together. I know that was a a quick overview of 28 chapters, but I hope that you see in that thread, the thread of unity that that undergirds the mission of God. The reason I'm spending time on that is because I think too often as Christians, we think of unity as kind of like a a nice to have feature. Like I'd like to be part of a church that was unified, sure. I would also like to be part of a church that has air conditioning because both sound comfortable, right? Um, But that's kind of our, I think that might be our American individualism coming out a little bit, right? Sort of our, our Johnny Appleseed heritage of I'm going to go do it on my own, thinking that we could carry out the assignment Jesus gives the apostles without one another. No, no, we need one another in order to be the church. The unity of the church and the mission of church feed one another. It is out of the unity that the mission is carried out, and the mission makes the unity meaningful. Instead of just being a nice community group together, it gives us a purpose for our unity. Um, I also want to mention this. I think it's worth, especially a church like ours, in a culture like ours, thinking carefully about unity. Because as California American evangelical Protestants, we have a lot of cultural factors that have signaled that unity was not our first priority in our history. Here's what I mean. Because we're Americans, I mean, we said to the king, no thanks, right? (laughs) That's, That's our separation, right? We're Protestants, which means we said to the pope, no thanks. We're evangelicals because we said to the mainline denominations, no thanks. 
And we're Californians for a lot of us because we said to family back in the East Coast or the Midwest or in Mexico or Asia, uh, I'm going to go my own way, right? We're, we're going to live on the frontier. Someone in our family heritage did that. I think it's worth thinking about that water part that we are so often blind to as fish. We're just thinking like, oh, maybe we're more individualistic and less focused on unity than other Christians around the world. And it's maybe a, a part of scripture that we don't notice as carefully because unity is not necessarily something that uh, our culture here uh, prioritizes. And specifically, I, I want to point that out because this is really a must-have quality as followers of Jesus. You know, in John 13, 35, Jesus said, By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus told the disciples that one of the hallmarks that would mark them as people is that they would love one another. And you say, well, Bob, I thought you said this was about unity, not love. And I say, tell your spouse that you love them, but you're not united to them and see how that goes for you. <laughs> unity and love go together. Right? My prayer for this series for you and for me is that we'll be able to be encouraged about the value of unity. We'll see that, that there, it is a good thing to be part of a unified people together that we'll be convicted about our own sort of passive neglect of this or active undercutting of unity, and that we'll have some tools as we look through Acts to equipping us to be a more unified people at the end of this. All right, that is the longest introduction I've ever given to a sermon. So let's get into Luke 1, or Acts 1, and look at this specific passage. We, we come to verse 12 here, um, where we start our passage. At the end of the scene where Jesus has told the disciples of their assignment, he's returned to the Father's right hand, Disciples go back to Jerusalem to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit that's been promised for them. And they spend about 10 days waiting. Uh, Jesus' resurrection, 40 days of, of appearances, 10 more days, and then the Holy Spirit comes on Pentecost. So we're in that 10-day period, and verse 14 says, They were all with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. I know I read that kind of quickly. But it's worth noticing how remarkable that statement is when you think about who these people are. When you read through the names uh, of the 11 remaining apostles, you read about zealots, that is, those who wanted to violently overthrow the government, and tax collectors, the people who had chosen to uh, capitulate to the Roman government, people who would have hated each other except for Jesus. As you read about the apostles, you read about men who, out of a desire to protect themselves, and in Peter's case, even to the point of denying that he knew Jesus, had fled from the scene of Jesus' crucifixion. And you read about the women who, at the risk of their own life, had been there with Jesus at the cross until the very end. You read about the apostles who had given up everything to follow Jesus and who he had described as his brothers in faith. And you read about Jesus' biological brothers, or half-brothers, who the only time we see them in Luke had made fun of the idea that their brother could be the Messiah. There's a lot of tensions that are in this room that apparently have been solved by something. And the obvious question is, well, what? What could have solved those tensions? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's really the best example or best uh, example of what we need and of what is possible because of the gospel. That we can be with people who are very different than us and who have very different views on the world than we do because there's something greater that unites us. And there's not a need to blame, to rank, to prioritize over one another when we are all on level ground under Jesus' love. 
this posture is surprising. This one accordness is surprising if we look at it from a sociological lens. But if we look at it from the lens of what Christ has done, it makes all the sense in the world. This is a fulfillment of Jesus' own prayer, right? In John 17, before he goes to the cross, he says, Father, I pray that they would be one even as we are one. And Luke sees that happening in the early church. I believe Jesus is delighted today by your unity. Your unity as a local church, your unity with other people, with your unity with Christians around the world. I think Jesus is delighted when people that he loves love one another. When we prioritize one another, when we are interested in one another, when we care for one another. And I'm really grateful for you as a church that you have exhibited so much unity. Your unity is really a gift to our community. I joke sometimes that um, I, I know that all your preferences aren't met at this church. I know that there are things that you would like to be different because there are things that I would like to be different, right? And I'm the senior pastor and there's things that I don't like, like the preaching, often when I'm preaching. Um, and, uh, and I get that, right? Like we, we, none of us get things the way we want, but if we're gonna be in a community where people uh, are prioritized over our own preferences, that means giving up some things that we prefer. But that's normal, right? If you wanna be part of a, something bigger than yourself, you have to give up your preferences. If you want to be in a relationship with another person, whether it's a friendship, romantic relationship, a marriage relationship, whatever, you have to be willing to give up your preferences sometimes to be in a relationship. If you always want things your own way, you're going to be a very lonely person. And if we want to be part of a unified community, a unified church, we have to be willing to give up our preferences. And Jesus is delighted when we choose to prioritize the other over ourselves. Now, uh, Part of me thought, I'll just, I'll just talk about verse 14. That'll be good. It's happy. Unity's great. You know, we orient to the series, then we, we can stop there. But I actually think what happens in the next part of the passage is really instructive for what's necessary for unity, and that's humility. What we see Peter do in these next few verses, I think, is a, a masterful example of why unity matters and why it's so hard to maintain. Because Peter's going to have to address here in the next few verses the big elephant in the room, that all these disciples are together and they're like, isn't this great? We can all get along. We're all here, all 11 apostles. And someone says, well, what about Judas, right? Are we going to talk about that? Are we going to talk about what happened to Judas? And I just, I just picture the Encanto song. Like, no, we don't, we don't talk about Judas. Um, <laughs> now, one of the first tasks that Peter has to deal with as a leader is the scandal of Judas. Judas' betrayal was a rejection. It was a rejection of everything they believed, and it was a rejection of their unity together. Imagine the evangelistic impact of having one of Jesus' best friends turn his back on him, not passively or slowly, but dramatically and up to the point of death. And a lot of us probably would have not wanted to talk about it, but Peter, to his credit, and out of humility, stands up in the community and says, we've got to deal with this. Verse 15, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now, there's a lot of questions here, a lot of theology here that would be worth spending a lot of time to think about. What does it mean that the scriptures had to be fulfilled so there was God's foreknowledge here, and that Judas was responsible for his own free will and his own choice to betray Jesus. Did Judas have a choice not to sin? Did Judas have a choice not to do this? 
what does it mean for, for God to be sovereign over this and Judas to make his own choice? That's an important question. Pastor Steve is up here in the front. He would love to answer how free will <laughs> and determinism fit together. We're going we're gonna to save that for another day. I want to focus on something different in the telling of this. It's Peter's example of humility. That, Peter's would, that Peter would describe Judas's sin so clearly, publicly, and personally is unfortunately very rare in Christian circles, at least in my experience. It's very rare for someone to get up and say, hey, this happened, it was wrong, and let's talk about it. Um, it's been all too rare over the last 50 years or the last 100 years, especially in American Christianity, as we swept a lot of things under the rug that were even as heinous as they were, less heinous than betraying and killing the Son of God, right? If ever there was something to cover up, you'd think it would be covering up what Judas has done. Instead, Peter, rather than hiding behind the excuse of what harm it could do to the church, instead says, think about what harm it would do if we don't talk about it. If ever there was a time to hide, it'd be now. And yet, if there's ever a time we can't hide it, it's now. He speaks clearly rather than using evasive language about Judas's role, his own demise, and gives here a detailed and accurate warning to everyone who would follow him. I bring this up because, uh, not that a lot of us will be in Peter's role in the future, but to, to recognize that unity is not threatened by the truth. Unity is not threatened even by uh, difficult things to talk about when that unity is founded in Jesus. Unity is, should never be an excuse to cover up sin. Unfortunately, it has been. It has been in the last 50 years of especially clergy sex abuse crises in the Catholic Church and in other denominations. It's been an excuse for churches who, who don't want to acknowledge the pain and hurt that have been caused to people. And unfortunately, it's been an excuse, uh, unity has been used as an excuse to protect people who are in power rather than to help uh, the church as a whole deal with the cost of what's happened. I think we'd grow a lot if we learned from Peter's example here. Now, I understand that some of you have been here a while and you say, Bob, I have some questions then about things you didn't tell me that happened 10 years ago. And I realize we can't talk about every situation publicly all the time. The goal isn't gossip, but there is a space for doing what Peter does here and being honest and clear and personal about the threats to unity. And I do think it's very personal for Peter. I mean, look at what it says. He was numbered among us and allotted his share in this ministry. I wonder how much shame the disciples might have felt that their friend did this to Jesus or how much guilt they might have felt as, as survivors or guilt for not doing something. Do you think Peter and Andrew ever said in the years to come, like, I knew Judas was no good. Yeah, me too. Why didn't we do something? I don't know, right? I wonder how much that sort of rattled around in their mind or in their brain. Why am I spending time on this? Why am I thinking through this? None of us, you know, Judas was a once in history figure. Why do we spend time thinking about this? Uh, because I want to make a distinction between unity and niceness. Like, there's very little nice in what Peter's doing here, but there's a lot of unity here. To talk about unity is not a path of least resistance. It's not a path of ease, but it is a path that moves us towards one another. And it, sometimes that involves talking about things that, that aren't comfortable to talk about. Now, Peter's goal isn't just bloodletting here. It's not just to, to, woo, to, to let everything out for the sake of letting it out. It's, he has a goal. He says, we need a 12th apostle. Um, because the concept of the 12 apostles was based on the Old Testament, 12 tribes of Israel, um, 
just as the 12 sons of, of Jacob became the, the 12 tribes of Israel. So the 12 apostles meant to, are meant to represent this new people of God that are founded on Jesus. And for the, one, for the only time that the apostles do this, they say, we need to replace this 12th apostle. Now in Acts 12, when James, the brother of John dies, they don't replace him again. When Matthew dies, they don't replace him. It's not like a rotating thing. Um, but in this one time in history, they say, we need to replace Judas with a new apostle. And it's fascinating to me that Peter would do this at all, or the apostles would do this at all. It shows a generosity, a, a, a humility that they would say, we're going to expand the circle and bring someone else in. See, unity isn't threatened by expanding the circle, right? It's enhanced by it. Unity looks to bring other leaders in with us, to follow the example of Jesus himself and, and to bring people into the circle. So, uh, in verse 21, it gives us some of the criteria that they're going to use to find this 12th apostle. It says in verse 21, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Notice the phrase there, witness to his resurrection. That's the primary purpose of the apostles. It's, it's not uh, that's part of why we don't have apostles today, right? Because there are no living witnesses to the resurrection. Um, and they say that we need to find someone who has been through the whole gamut with Jesus. And so the community, which I think is interesting in verse 23, they put forward too. Peter doesn't choose him himself. The community does. Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. I, I really admire Peter in this scene because there's a lot of leaders who would take this opportunity to consolidate power, to say, you know, no new friends, right? This is, this is we're bringing the circle in. And Peter says, no, no, in humility and in unity, this is a chance to, to move the circle out. And we're going to include some new leaders with those of us who've been here before. And if there's a reason to admire Peter's humility, these other two that we don't know anything about, Joseph and Matthias, it's worth admiring their humility, humility as well. Can you imagine being one of the guys who followed Jesus from the very beginning, the baptism of John, for three years through his resurrection, and you didn't get picked to be an apostle? Think about all the stuff the apostles get to do. You know, like the feeding of the 5,000, they're the ones with the baskets. You don't get a basket, right? The, uh, the walking on water wasn't there, didn't get a seat in the boat, right? Um, Think about all the things that they were on the outside looking in for, and they persisted in following Jesus because Jesus was worth it. I admire these two guys so much. We don't know anything about them, uh, besides that Joseph had a couple nicknames, and, and that Matthias, according to church history, might have become the first missionary to Ethiopia, which uh, is cool. We don't know if historically that's true, but, but some of the church fathers say that that's where he may have ended up. And out of these two really good candidates, they have to choose one. Now, again, out of humility and out of unity, Peter doesn't choose to make this choice himself. He turns it over to the community and they decide to cast lots to decide. Lots are kind of like dice. Um, that's my very technical explanation. Verse 24, they prayed and said, you, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place <clears throat> in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So, uh, is this how you're supposed to make decisions? Like, where am I going to college? Roll some dice. Like, who am I marrying? Uh, be great if I did this on The Bachelor next time. Just like, roll some dice. Uh, 
I mean, you can. Proverbs 16.33 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. If you want to make decisions this way, I, I guess you could. I've never made a decision by lots. I personally don't know of any churches that have done this, though I, I've been told this morning of a couple instances out there. Um, I would say, though, what's behind this is worth really attending to. If you look at the passage carefully, you see that Peter... Um, doesn't lean on his own understanding, but he leans on the community. They put forward the two candidates. He leans on godly counsel in order to draw a number of different good options and from there hold up two good godly options before God and make a decision. Could Peter have just chosen himself? Could he have just said, I like Matthias. I, I like his face. Or I think he's really skilled. I'm going to make that call. He could have, but I really admire that Peter in his sort of first major decision as leader of the church, Catholics would say the Pope, doesn't make the decision himself, right? Instead, he holds an open hand before God and says, God, you choose. The lot, the lot casts, uh, lands on Matthias and he becomes the new apostle. Now, we don't know what happens. I, I, know there, I know there's a minority view that some people think this was a mistake, that this 12th apostle was supposed to be Paul and, and they made a whole mistake by doing this. I, I don't buy that. Acts doesn't say it's a mistake, there's other apostles that we'll see later on in Acts, uh, Barnabas, maybe Junia in Romans 16. Um, so I, James, the brother of Jesus. So, so I don't think that, uh, I'm not convinced that, that this is a mistake. I think rather it's a model of humility for us to learn from ourselves. If we're going to be of one accord like the first Christians were, we need that same sort of humility that they had. The same sort of looking to one another, preferring one another, and seeing that the mission of God is worth serving together. That unity is going to be corrupted by pride and selfishness. If we insist on our own way, things how we would want them at the expense of one another, we're never going to have the unity that God desires for us. Well, um, the reason, and, 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 okay, last thing. I know I'm going long, but remember the last couple weeks when I went short? That was great. <laughs> last thing I want to say. There's a reason you and I can be humble. We're going to take communion today to be reminded of that. The reason that we can be humble is because Christ has accomplished everything that matters for life and godliness on the cross. We don't have to pretend to have it all together. We don't have to pretend to have all the answers. We can hold an open hand like Peter did, whether we cast lots or not. Metaphorically, we can hold an open hand and say, God, you know, you're in control. I don't have to, to pretend to have everything under wraps. I don't have to have everything my own way because you have accomplished on the cross all that I need. I, I'm looking forward to taking communion with you today as an act of unity, not just with our local church, but with Christians all around the world. A proclamation that in Christ we are united. And that's not just a, a nice statement or a pleasant thought, but it's a description of our commitment to one another, that Christ has won on the cross for us. As we take communion, I hope that we will do that out of a spirit of humility before God and out of a desire to be humbled before one another. Let's pray together. God, I'm grateful for this passage. I'm grateful for Peter's example of humility, Matthias's example of humility, and reminded of how much I long to be um, in unity with these brothers and sisters here and connected to them and serving with them in a way that honors you. Uh, God, I pray for my friends who are here um, who have been uh, going through a hard time, and I pray for the ones that specifically uh, feel like their humility has not yet led unity. It's just 
led pain and hurt. I pray that you would speak words of hope to them this morning. I pray for, for those of us who are habituated by this culture into not choosing humility, but choosing a path of selfishness and isolation. That's what we're all going back to this afternoon and tomorrow morning. A world that wants to cast us into its mold of being self-centered and telling us that we deserve to have things our own way. God, I pray that our eyes would turn towards Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who has uh, not chosen his own safety and security, but chosen to give up his life as a ransom for all of us. God, may we follow his example, preferring the other as well. In Christ's name we pray, amen.